welcome to Valley Church. It's great to see you guys. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael. Um, we are going to keep plugging away in the Gospel of Matthew because we're almost there, and I'm very excited. Um, almost finished, that is. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Matthew 26. Um, we're going to be in verses 17 through 35. Tonight's passage is about the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist, if you're cool. Um, ironically, we took communion last week because we tried to take it on the first Sunday of the month, and I just, I don't know why I didn't save it for today, because this passage is about communion. I realized that on Monday when I, like, opened up my Bible, I'm like, what's coming next? Oh, cool, we are to communion. But you know what? We can do communion two weeks in a row. Some people do it every week, which is wild. Um, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight, communion. And so we'll take communion tonight again. So if you missed that on the way in, you can grab a cup on the table in the back. Um, the question I was thinking about, why is communion such a big deal? Um, why is it a sacrament? We call it this kind of, this holy ordinance, so to speak. What does that even mean? Why is, why is communion a big deal to us? If I asked you that question, if we were just like hanging out and I made it clear that I wasn't testing you or quizzing you to make you feel like stressed, but if we were just having a conversation and I asked you why, why is communion such a big deal? Or if, if a, a non-Christian friend of yours said, what is the big deal with it? Why is it so serious? What would your response be? How about if I told you that you couldn't say, like it's, if we played like taboo, like if there were some words that you couldn't say, like you couldn't say sacrament, you couldn't say like Jesus told us to, um, he told us to do a lot of things. Why is this thing special? Um, you couldn't say the word remember. Like, you couldn't tell him, that's just how we, like, remember how he died. There's lots that we can remember him and what he did anytime we want without um, bread or juice. Um, so that's the question I'm thinking about. Why, why is it important? Um, it does matter to us, to, like, everyone in here. We, we know that it's important, and I think maybe that's in part because it's just, like, a learned vibe that we get around communion. Um, rightfully so, we've kind of made it like this beautiful, weighty, um, maybe even like a somber moment for us. It's a, it's a moment of importance. We're kind of trained to be respectful, to take it seriously. Um, but at least in my experience, not necessarily taught like, why? Why is, why is that the case? Why should it be taken so seriously? Um, I think to someone outside of the church, if they kind of popped in on it, they might not know why. Um, they might just see like, oh, that's some religious kind of symbolic act that they take very seriously. So that's what I want to talk about. Why is it a big deal? And this passage in Matthew helps explain, I think, why it is. I do think separately, we kind of just intrinsically experience its importance when we do it. It is a, like a spiritual mystery that we partake in when we take communion. And so on one hand, we don't have to fully understand it. Slash, we probably can't fully understand it. But like if you felt an earthquake under your feet, and your eyes got wide, you're like, whoa, that, that was a big deal, oh my word. And then someone next to you is like, why, why is it a big deal? You just felt the earth shake. You'd be like, that was a big deal, you felt it too. I think that kind of happens with communion, or it can, where we don't have to fully understand it. We don't have to like dig in to know all the intricate details of how it came to be and what it's based on and all that stuff. We just do it, and we actually, in a special way, experience the presence of Jesus in it. And so it just is a felt um, it's a big deal that we just feel as we do it without necessarily understanding it. However, I'd like to understand it. <laughs> Maybe you would too. Or at least we could talk about it for a little while. And so that's what this passage in Matthew is describing, is the Last Supper at the Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples. So we're going to dig into it. 
We're going to read our passage in its entirety, verses 17 through 35 of chapter 26 in the Gospel of Matthew. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you're here. Even if we forgot it um, over the course of this week, if we got busy and distracted and numb or apathetic, um, we take a moment to remember that you have been with us. We take a moment to remember you are with us now individually and with our church corporately. Also, we just ask that you would help us understand this. Um, we can't on our own. And so would you um, illuminate the pages and the words for us so that we uh, not can just know cool things, but that we might know you and that we might be able to follow you in the way that you'd like us to. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage and look at 17 through 19. The first day of the festival of unleavened bread, disciples came to Jesus, asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Tells them, go into the city to a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm gonna celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. So it's the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. Now, if you're not like up to date in your knowledge on the Jewish festivals, let's just go back and talk about them. Refresh on what it is. In the book of Exodus, God's people cry out for deliverance from Pharaoh who has enslaved and oppressed them. 
God uses Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let them go to worship God. Pharaoh refuses, and so God keeps showing them these signs. The Bible, kind of historically, we use the word plagues, but the phrase signs and wonders is a better understanding of them. He's doing all these proofs of his power and his majesty and his godness. Um, So he keeps showing these signs over and over again, proving that to Pharaoh, attempting to convince Pharaoh, I'm real, I'm here, you need to let my people go. But Pharaoh keeps refusing until the last sign that God does. He tells Pharaoh, let my people come, go away and worship me, or I will wipe out every living firstborn thing in Egypt. But Pharaoh's heart is hard, incredibly hard and set against God, and so he refuses to do this. That's Exodus 1 through 11, summarized. The day before God does this, or maybe even the same day, earlier in the day, before God does this final sign to the Egyptians, he instructs his people, the Israelites, to get ready to get out of Egypt. Part of these instructions to get ready to go would involve their meal, like what they would eat as they prepare to leave, which is the Passover meal. So he tells them to slaughter a lamb, eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, He tells them, we've talked about it, but he tells them to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that God would pass over their house and not kill the firstborn children in the Israelites' houses. Um, He tells them to eat the meal quickly with your cloak tucked into your belt, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, meaning we're gonna have to go very soon. There's no time for the bread to rise. There's no time to look for your shoes. There's no time to trip over your cloak. When it's time to go, you need to be ready. What's interesting, though, about this story in Exodus 11 and 12 is where we are, is that we're reading, like, the narrative of what's happening to the Israelites at the time, and then it kind of, like, all of a sudden also becomes about, like, further instructions for a future Israel about how they are to remember this story. Um, So that's what's happening here. We're reading about the creation of and the institution of the Passover meal and the festival of unleavened bread, which was to celebrate God's deliverance of them um, from Egypt. So let's look at Exodus 12. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but Exodus 12, 13 and 17. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then we move. That's like, that's the narrative. That's what's happening. And then it um, shifts to like the implementation, the creation of the, the festival. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt, all your multitude of people out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So what we're gathering from this, the Passover event was incredibly important and formative for Israel, so much so that this little moment for them, God wanted them to remember every year forever. It set them apart as a people. I mean, imagine being like, gathered around a table in your house. It's like a late dinner. You're eating the meal, but you're also packed and kind of like ready to go. Um, Maybe you start to drift off to sleep a little bit. 
But then at midnight, you hear just the outcry of so much death around you, like weeping and wailing. You're a, a foreigner, you are a slave, you've been abused for years and years and years, and finally, something's happening. You're told to get ready to go. So Pharaoh summons Moses, tells him to take his people and leave, get out. They journey through the desert toward the Red Sea, but Pharaoh changes his mind, and he wants, it seems like he wants to bring them back. He's like, oh no, we lost, I lost all of our laborers. And so he wants to go get them back. Um, but we know the story. God opens up the sea. The Israelites escape through the sea. The Egyptian army does not. God delivers them from their oppressors and they are free. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover meal, which starts that feast, became the way God wanted his people to remember what he had done for them way back in Exodus. So in order for them to remember God's faithfulness, his power, his salvation, he establishes a meal, a meal to be shared with their community that was intended to prompt them, kind of guide them towards remembering God's um, salvation. It's supposed to prompt gratitude and renew their faithfulness um, to God for what he had done for them. So back to Matthew and Jesus some 1,500 years later. God's people are still celebrating this Passover meal, the festival of unleavened bread. Um, Jesus' disciples ask, where should we get the meal ready? He tells them to go to the city, find a dude, say the, the eagle has landed, it's time, and he'll know what that means sort of thing. And so they go. Um, before our, it's weird, before the passage turns into like being about communion, we have this little sad little interjection here in verses 20 through 25. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. So his disciples, Jesus, they're reclined, probably leaning on one of their elbows, um, scooted up to this really low table where their Passover meal is in front of them. Da Vinci's painting is beautiful. I think we have a picture of it, but not accurate. First of all, probably not white people. Also probably not at this beautiful, ornate table like that. Probably more like something more like this, the next picture. Um, so they're sitting there at this table, enjoying this meal together. Um, and then Jesus just decides that this is the moment to drop the bomb on them. One of you is going to betray me. And um, they're all sad about it. Uh, not because they know it's Judas, they don't know that. But they're like, seriously, one of, like, is it gonna be me? So they're probably like just reeling and like self-doubt, like, oh my gosh, am I gonna be the one to do this? Jesus tells them, yep, one of you at this table, one of you who takes this bread, they probably were dipping it into this like bowl of pureed fruit or something. Um, one of these people sharing a meal with Jesus, this Passover meal, is gonna betray him. But Matthew makes sure to tell us, Jesus tells us, this is according to God's plan. Like the Son of Man is going to be delivered and crucified and risen just as it is written. Um, similar to how, uh, what Jesus said earlier when the um, chief priests were kind of plotting to have Jesus arrested. Like yes, they were plotting, but this was according to God's plan all along. Judas asks, surely it's not me. And Jesus essentially says something like, if you say so, or like, so you say. 
um, I, we're, we're meant to kind of know on the outside that, yeah, Jesus knew, and Judas probably knew that he was going to betray him, but that it was ambiguous enough of a response on Jesus' part that I don't think the other 12 knew. Now, for the communion part. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. So they're in the middle of their Passover meal. There's all these different kind of stages of it. If you guys have heard about a Seder meal, it's, that is a modern Jewish Passover meal. I, I believe, if, if I've read correctly and if I understand that the Passover meal they would have shared was much more simple than a modern Seder, um, Seder Passover meal. So they're in the middle of this Passover meal. Jesus um, has just sent them in this tailspin, wondering if they are gonna be one, the one to betray him at some point. And then he grabs some bread and he blesses it. He probably says something like, blessed art thou, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, was a common blessing of the bread before they'd eat it. He breaks it, hands it out, and says, eat. This uh, broken bread is my body. That would have been a new thing for them to hear as part of their Passover meal. They would have, that was just an unexpected new line for them to hear. I'm sure they're wondering, what in the world does that mean? Technically, we are all still wondering, what in the world does that phrase mean? He says, this is my body. All we know for sure is that Jesus wants us to think about his body broken for us when we eat the bread. And then he moves on to the next part of the meal. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is where it gets fascinating, at least to me. So Jesus busts out this very unique new instruction regarding the cup. He says it is the blood of the covenant, the blood which, uh, which will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's talk about the covenant. The main covenant that, that Israel was under was the Sinai Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant. Basically, the agreement of God to be their God, to be Israel's God, um, and for Israel to do all that God asked them to do, and to become the people of God that he wanted them to be. It's all outlined in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's where we read this story. So the covenant was essentially to obey God, all that he had asked them to do and to be, and God would be their God. He would dwell among them, bless them, bring them into their own land. The problem is that they failed miserably to keep up their end of the covenant. They ran after other gods, disobeyed in countless ways, basically from the moment Moses was on the mountain receiving these instructions. They're down there disobeying, and then immediately after he brings them down, they disobey. Um, They arrive in the land God promised them, but they disobeyed for generations and generations, and then part of the agreement of the covenant was if you don't follow this, you're going to wind up taken out of this land and enter into, uh, be taken into captivity, and that's exactly what happens. God's people are in exile, and then at some point, God promises to make a new covenant with them. They're like stuck out of their homeland. They have generations of people that have just wandered away from God, not followed the covenant. Um, and then God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that something is gonna change. There's gonna be a new way for God and his people to have a relationship. And it's looked forward to in a few different places, not just in Jeremiah, but 
I think Jesus likely has Jeremiah 31 on his mind when he says what he says in Matthew. So let's look at Jeremiah 31, uh, chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Jesus is saying that this blood about to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins is the cleansing agent that binds people to this new covenant relationship with God. So we're not gonna turn there, but in Exodus 24, so we left off the story, they escape through the Red Sea and they wind up on the other side, they praise God. And then they're basically waiting for God to give Moses these instructions for like how to become the people that he wanted them to be. Um, so after they receive all the commands and instructions and the promises of God and promises of Yahweh to be their God, to establish this covenant, they're instructed to sacrifice bulls, take the blood and sprinkle some of it on the altar in the tabernacle and then to do something else with the rest of the blood. Moses reads them the whole book of the covenant um, and then they respond. After Moses reads it to them, they say, um, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. So, Hundreds of thousands of people say that in unison or something to Moses after he reads the instructions. Then, with the blood of the sacrificed bulls, I don't know how many or how much blood, Moses sprinkles it, it says, on the people. Takes the blood of these bulls and sprinkles it on the people. Hundreds of thousands, probably, maybe more, sprinkled with this blood. So this would usually defile them, but in this case, it kind of cleanses them and it is the way in which the covenant is confirmed or like ratified between God and his people. Exodus 24, eight, Moses took the blood, sprinkled on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Just like, I wanna let that connect in your mind to what Jesus said and what Moses says. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Back to Jesus, he takes the cup, he says, this is my blood, my blood of the covenant. The implication being the blood of a new covenant. Uh, Bible scholar Leon Morris said, Jesus was saying that his death would be central to the relationship between God and the people of God. It would be the means of cleansing from past sins and consecrating to a new life of service to God. It would be the establishing of the covenant that was based not on people's keeping it, but on God's forgiveness. It makes me think about this passage in Isaiah. There's a handful of chapters that we call like the servant song about the suffering servant of God um, where it talks about how this servant of Yahweh, this Messiah figure, says that he would sprinkle many nations. I don't know if that line, that scripture rings a bell to you. But even then, Isaiah is prophesying to the people that this servant of Yahweh would 
open up covenant relationship with God to all nations, not just to Israel. This is what Jesus is revealing in this communion moment of what is coming with the new covenant. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what I'm gonna say is, uh, I I think it's true. I think there's some background happening in this meal that Jesus is playing on, but it doesn't say it in the text. So if you don't like it, you can just brush it off. But I, I think it makes sense and it's helpful. So in the Passover meal that they had, there were four cups of wine that they would drink from together. Um, In each one, they would take a specific moment to remember a promise of God from Exodus chapter six. So this is part of their Passover meal celebration. Exodus 6, six. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and promise number one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. They take cup number one. Number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Take cup number two. And I think that there's more, I, think, I don't think it's like one in quick succession after the other. I don't think they were like pounding four um, shots in between these, but I think they're spread out. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And number four, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. I don't know how, but there were like a good number, a good number of Bible scholars when I was reading, trying to understand what's happening, who really um, are convinced that Jesus is offering this new covenant information during or just after the third or as part of the third cup related to the third promise. So either in addition to or instead of saying, um, probably in addition to saying, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, he says what he says in verse 28. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then, rather than offering the fourth cup, saying what he would say from Exodus 6, I will take you as my own people, I will be your God, he says what he says in verse 29. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on, so he stops at three of four on purpose and says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, the promise of the fourth cup, Jesus has intentionally abstained from it as a moment of teaching uh, them. The promise of the fourth cup that Yahweh would take Israel officially to be his people, that he would be their God. Jesus is abstaining from that cup, saying that he will fulfill that promise when he returns. That component of God delivering Israel, that what Jesus was doing now, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity, he is promising to fulfill that when he returns, when heaven and earth are fully united and when Jesus reigns as king. And then the passage ends on a downer. <laughs> when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So they wrap up their Passover meal with a hymn, and they go out to the Mount of Olives, this hillside across the valley from Jerusalem, 
And he tells them that they were soon all going to fall away from him that very night. But then he promises that he would rise and that he would meet them back in Galilee, out away from the chaos and the danger of Jerusalem that they were in, back to where it all started. And then in the middle of that, Jesus links the disciples soon to be falling away to this um, passage near the end of the book of Zechariah. That's where the quotation comes from, Zechariah 13. Um, I'll just tell you this, the section headings of Zechariah 12, uh, 13, and 14, just to give you, rather than reading all of it. Um, so in 12, one of the section headings is Jerusalem's enemies to be destroyed. And then mourning for the one they pierced. And then chapter 13, I think, cleansing from sin. And then the shepherd uh, struck and the sheep scattered is another. And then finally, the Lord comes and reigns. So those are the, like, that's like the heading of the content that Jesus is quoting from when he says what he says to the disciples. Now, there is not a small amount of scholarly debate on like what the original context of Zechariah's prophecies, um, who they are about, exactly what shepherd is he referring to. It's hard to tell if he's referring to like these false prophets um, in Zechariah's day um, or if he's referring to um, a shepherd that's um, a shepherd of God, that he is um, basically like uh, that God would be inflicting a wound on his own ally, his own shepherd, someone who shepherds on his behalf, the one who was pierced. Um, the point, though, that Jesus is making in quoting this passage is that he, their shepherd, will soon be struck by the sword and it will cause his disciples to scatter. But he says he will rise and gather them again in Galilee. Because the uh, ending of Zechariah um, is about God's enemies being destroyed, God's, one of God's shepherds being pierced, about the forgiveness of sin, about the establishing of the rule and reign of God, I think that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to think along those lines. He was taking them back to a whole context, not to just one little sentence. And I, I hope that that's been like made a little bit clear as we have taught through Matthew that Jesus will say a, a quote. He'll say something from the Old Testament or Matthew will say, this happened to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said or something like that. Um, when they do that, they're, they're pointing us to one verse, or, you know, one section, but um, if we were a disciple or someone that knew our Bibles, we wouldn't be able to just yank that out of its context. We would be thinking about that verse in its context of that prophet or something. So I think that's what we should do here that we should pick, yes, Jesus is talking about how when he is killed, it's, just, it's gonna scatter his disciples. Um, but it's also in the context of this, I think, a, a servant shepherd of the Lord being killed, pierced, killed, and somehow this is for the forgiveness of sin. And somehow this contributes, it moves toward God ruling and reigning over his people. Um, so I think Matthew wants us to see that all that's about to happen, all that Jesus has said is gonna happen, including and especially the disciples falling away, one of them betraying him. We're like, we have this beautiful like Lord's Supper, like rich theology in here and it's interspersed with the disciples like frailty, like their inability to like follow him well, follow him perfectly. But it's reinforced by this um, foundation, this current of like God is doing what he has been promising to do all along, even with the failures of his disciples. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So in typical Peter fashion, he's just like, I'll never do that. He's strong-willed, maybe a little hot-headed. He's confident. He wants to let Jesus know, like, I'm on your team to the end. Then all the disciples are joining, like, yeah, yeah, me too, totally. And I'll never fall away. Even though Jesus now has told them, one of you is going to betray me, and all of you are going to fall away from me. Um, They still are trying to promise that they won't. And so that is our next step in our journey on the way to the cross, the resurrection. We have the Last Supper. So the next section will be about Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think um, this passage should be stirring up two things in us. One, it should be um, helping us prepare our hearts for celebrating Good Friday and Easter. So we don't really follow like a, a typical or classic church calendar, but for most I think most Christians, for most of church history, people have been taking intentional seasons to reflect on and prepare for um, the big events that we celebrate as people of God. In this season, we people will reflect on and prepare for celebrating Jesus's death and resurrection. I mean, the the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration for the original people of God to celebrate them being delivered from Egypt. And the historic Catholic Church, Catholic meaning the universal church, has observed um, for a long time Lent as a season to prepare our hearts to be grateful for Jesus' suffering on our behalf and to be grateful for his sacrifice for our sins and Easter to celebrate his resurrection. And us Protestants over here are like, hey, it's Easter, let's like dress a little nicer and hide some eggs and maybe we'll sing a song about the resurrection on Sunday. Um, and if you're feeling extra spiritual, maybe we'll do like a night of communion on Good Friday, which is fine. And we're gonna do all, literally all of those things. Um, but I think we need to do something a little bit more than that. Whether you take time to reflect and to pray or, or read through some type of Lent devotional, whether you may, you may observe Lent, um, there are a lot of different options, things that we can do to help us, like, in this season, prepare for, like, properly, appropriately um, celebrating what Jesus has done. Um, and I would probably say just pick one small thing and start to do that over the next few weeks, a small mental shift. I, I've just been praying, like, I don't know what to do, but I don't want the season to catch me by surprise. And I feel like it's weird that as a pastor it does, but it totally does. Um, and so I've been praying that it would not just come and go without me like slowing down to really think on it and ponder and be grateful um, as I, as I want to be. If I felt like there was like a right answer or a one-size-fits-all approach, I would probably tell you what to do, but I don't know that there is. Um, And so I challenge you to consider that this evening and this week to um, think of something, maybe something just small, to help you tap into what the church has done for a long time during this season that we're in right now. More than a church service, more than a -a once-a-year thing, um, something to remember and think on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the first part. This passage should probably help us think, let's prepare for Good Friday and Easter. 
But the second thing I want to talk, I just want to talk about um, communion. And I might, I might ramble and just like go all over the place, but we'll see. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, if you spend any amount of time in the church, uh, you grow to understand like that communion is important, um, but maybe not necessarily why, why it is. Maybe we understand bits and pieces of it. You know, Jesus asked, asked us to do it. We remember his sacrifice for us and so on. Uh, I don't know about you, but I just, I want to like have a rich understanding of it. I want to like think about it deeply and, and help it be meaningful for myself and, and for you guys as well. Um, and so what I've gathered, the way I, I've, the best way I know how to help it like pack a punch in the best way is to think about communion as Passover 2.0. Maybe Passover is like the beta release of communion or something. But it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. I don't think Jesus came to abolish Passover but to fulfill it. He's taking the old concept, something that they had celebrated for many, many years, and I think showing us the like truest, fullest meaning of why that was so special and important for God's people, even more so now for us as the people of God as we take communion. And based on how Jesus sets up communion, how he interprets the Passover and changes things about the meal with what he says, I think he wants us today to remember the whole story of God's salvation. To remember that he's a God who rescues and delivers. That he's a God who wants to be with his people. A God who makes a way to be with his people. And a God who makes and keeps his promises with those people. So I think that's what I'm kind of sticking to right now, what I'm stuck on in a good way, is that communion is important because it tells the whole story of God as Savior and Redeemer. He passed over the houses of the Israelites with the blood on the doorposts. And now he has passed over our sins, forgiven us, remembers them no more because of the blood of Jesus. He rescued Israel from Pharaoh, and he has rescued us from Satan. He cleansed and set his people apart in the old covenant, sprinkling them with the blood of the bulls. And he has set us apart and cleansed us through the blood of Jesus. In the same way that the blood of those bulls, like it ratified and made official the covenant with God and, and his people, Jesus' blood is the official um, marker of us becoming God's new covenant people. The old covenant was based on Israel following through with what God asked them to do, and the new covenant is fully based on God's faithfulness and his forgiveness of us. So all of that beautiful, rich theology is mashed up into this idea of communion, I think, the Lord's Supper. And the thing that is wild, this is the second important thing that I'm thinking about. What's wild is that the way God wants us to remember all of that, the way he designed for us to think about it, is in a meal, food. We have the most like treasured, important information, this rich story going all the way back to the Exodus, looking forward to Jesus and his sacrifice for us, and how does he want us to remember it? With bread and wine. The most daily, common food you could think of at this time. Today, we're like gluten-free, 
wine is expensive and like 14% alcohol. Back then, people just called a gluten intolerance a stomach ache, and wine was watered down, so they weren't getting drunk. That was just what they had. Um, Jesus uses the most commonplace items that they have around, things they eat all the time, and he said, this. This is how I'd like you to remember me and to remember what I've done. So communion is this incredibly rich story remembered in the most common habit, eating. It... uh, it reminded me of the genie from Aladdin. He's like, phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space. It's like epic, huge story of God's redemption and deliverance and in a PB&J. Or like something so like simple and basic as that. And so um, I'm just going to end with some like random, just like shotgun, uh, some thoughts and facts about communion as it relates to Valley. Um, And I'm probably going to touch on things that people have been debating on for like centuries and millennia, maybe. Um, So we do communion once a month uh, here, twice a month this month because we're cool. Um, Ideally, that's what I want to do. Once a month in here in our church service, and then we do, again, ideally communion in our homes around the table as part of our communities. This is ideal. It's also really hard to do, especially if you've got kids running around makes it difficult. Um, so that's kind of Valley's rhythm, but there is no prescribed rhythm in the Bible. There are people that think the Bible prescribes a particular rhythm of how and when to do it, um, but I'm not convinced by those passages. Um, the second thing, maybe it's the third thing, I don't know how many things I'm going to say, but I'm just going to go. The next thing uh, is this like debate between communion being a meal or this. Um, so what I see in 1 Corinthians, so this is like a pretty early church. In 1 Corinthians 11, we have this letter where Paul is responding to some information that he had heard about this church, right? And what he had heard about and what he's responding to in 1 Corinthians 11 is this situation. He's, he's telling them, you're taking the Lord's Supper wrong. He's saying, you're doing, you're doing the Lord's, the, the communion thing wrong. What they were doing is, their, churches, their church was gathering probably at someone's house and he was criticizing them because the people who were probably wealthier were basically starting their meal before other people could get there. So the people that didn't have to be out in the fields working late, they were eating dinner together and they were getting stuffed on all that was there, including the bread and the wine. Some of them were getting drunk and then the people, a, a part of the family of God in Corinth and that whatever city that they were or whatever part of the town that this church was meeting in that was gathering in there were these people that were essentially kind of like the have-nots at the time who were basically sitting physically on the outside of the gathering because they would eat probably under these like covered little areas and only the people that could get there sooner would be inside eating the meal and it'd be the people on the outside that got there later who were like I'm happy that you're stuffed and you've had a couple glasses of wine but we haven't had anything and so they're sitting on the outside so that's what Paul's criticizing in 1 Corinthians 11 is they're basically Um, getting stuffed before the rest of their church family can get there to share the Lord's Supper with them. And he tells them, don't do that. It's like, if you need to eat, like if you're hungry, eat before you come so that you can share this part of the meal together. That's what he tells them. And that's where the passage comes from that we always quote when we take communion together. Um, Paul says, for I received um, from the Lord as I delivered it to you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread, and so on. Um, so that's what I see in 1 Corinthians, but then 
really early on in the church's history, like not more than a few hundred years later, it seems like it either uh, re- stopped being a meal or at least in addition to a meal became this, but like a really official version of this where whatever bishop of a church in a certain town was the one who had to administer the food, say a specific blessing over it, and the Lord's Supper was something that happened only in a church service, and that was the way that it became kind of official. And um, so essentially it's like the meal versus the like church service priest-administered sacrament. That, that is the debate that I'm weighing into, and I think that we should probably do both. I think it is both. Something that we do together, I'm not gonna like administer the bread for you ever. Um, don't think we need to do that. But I do think that both are important, that our whole church family takes it together. This is probably just the most practical way to do that. But I also want to recover what I think it was initially, which is a meal around a table. I don't believe that the fight over transubstantiation is worth it. If you haven't heard that word before, it is the belief that the bread and the wine actually physically become the body and the blood of Jesus at some point in the process of the the priest kind of like sanctifying them or something or when they're actually um, partaking of them. Um, We're asking a question that I don't think the Bible is meaning to answer, which is like... um, does this physically, like do the, does the DNA, like the molecules of the bread become the molecules of Jesus's body? That's a question that the Bible's not intending to answer, a question that, uh, an answer that we can't have actually. Um, we can't know. Um, and I'm pretty certain that the apostles probably weren't asking that question. Um, they knew already that the communion elements were significant. Um, in that moment that we remember and we partake, they become a vessel through which we experience the presence of Christ. Um, and so yes, these things <laughs> become more than bread and wine. I believe that. But that's all that I know. That's all that I can confidently say. Um, there's an early church father, Irenaeus, he said, for as the bread which is produced from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly. So also our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, having the hope of the resurrection to eternity. So in the same way that scripture um, are both fully the words of humans and also fully the word of God, the same way that Jesus is fully God and fully man, same way that I think humans are fully free to reject God and also God fully chooses us, um, we have a good number of paradoxes to wrestle with as the people of God. Um, I think that communion is one of those. It is fully bread and wine. And it also, mysteriously, is the very real and true presence of Jesus as we partake of it. So it's more than just bread and wine. I don't know that I would go so far as uh, believing in transubstantiation. Um those are my random thoughts about communion. We're gonna keep doing it. Um, and really the only way to end it is to take it together. And so, the worship band can come back up here. Um, but let's take communion together. And before we do, let's take a moment and prepare our hearts, reflect on what we've heard, reflect on the Last Supper of Jesus before we take it.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread and remember Jesus' broken body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we thank you for the rich image you have given us of your salvation, that you um, reworked the Passover meal to remind us of how you have delivered us. Like you delivered Israel from Pharaoh, so you have rescued us, freed us, from being slaves to sin and made us your people by the blood of Jesus. And so I ask in this moment, as we have remembered in the way that you asked us to, that your presence would be here in us and around us as a church family, that no matter what we have done this week or this month, how we feel our following you has been, the things that we have done, the, the ways that we have failed and been unfaithful. Would you help us to remember the new covenant? That we belong to you not based on or because of our obedience, but because you chose us and because of Jesus' blood. We thank you that there's nothing that we have done or could do that would remove us or separate us from you and your love. And Jesus, I ask that as that sinks in, that it, as it sinks into my heart, would it drive us to be faithful to you? As we remember what you have saved us from, not 10 years ago, but two days ago or 10 seconds ago would your sacrifice for us drive us to be faithful to you and would it drive us to lift our hands to our king and to our savior we pray these things in Jesus name amen